You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello and welcome to this edition of the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Simon London with McKinsey Publishing. Today we feature a special episode from the McKinsey Global Institute, exploring the future of work. What impact will advances in robotics, automation, artificial intelligence have on the world of work? both the number of jobs available and the types of work that machines and humans will do in future. You'll be listening to James Manika, who's chairman and director of the McKinsey Global Institute, in conversation with our colleague Peter Gumbel. I hope you enjoy it. James, this issue of work and the future of work is one that you have been looking at for some time now with work on automation and uh, the latest report on jobs, jobs lost, jobs gained. Perhaps you can start off by telling us about the broader issues here and which are the ones you're really focusing on. Well, I think we're having an interesting time in our history and our economy around the future of work. It comes up in almost in every conversation with uh, students, with workers, with uh, CEOs, with policymakers. It's the topic of the day. And typically when this topic comes up, there are sort of three or four issues embedded within it. First, there's the question and discussion around the impact of artificial intelligence automation on work and jobs, whether we'll have enough work and jobs left after that. A second part of the future work conversation is around the changing models for work and work structures. So this involves questions around independent work, the gig economy, what sometimes people refer to as fissured work, when people work as outsourced services or not, and whether any of those kind of evolved work models are going to become the future and whether people can work effectively and sustainably and earn living wages with enough supports in that kind of world of more varied types of work. The third topic that comes up when it comes to the future of work is the whole income question. We know that uh, most advanced economies over the last decade have seen this huge stagnation of incomes, at least wage-driven incomes for workers and households. And so the question is, are we, and that ties into whole, the whole inequality debate, and can people work and earn enough to be able to make a living or not? And the question then is, will technology make that even worse as we look forward? And then finally, people are often asking the question of just how, how does a workplace actually change? And these are questions about how work will be organized, what will it look like in terms of people working alongside machines. So all of these questions are kind of embedded in this big topic called the future of work. But most recently, the work we're about to release has been a continuation of work we've been doing recently on automation specifically and the impact of artificial intelligence and autonomous system on this uh, question around you know, jobs and will there be enough work or are we going to make up enough work to make up for the ones we're going to lose, we're going to, that we're going to lose. Well, of course, this issue of automation and the idea that it's taking away work is one that is not at all new. In fact, it's, if you look back in history, we've seen centuries of concern about machines coming and taking over work. Why is this discussion coming up in such a big way today? The conversation has accelerated and gotten heated on this probably for a couple of big reasons. One is in the last few years, we've seen spectacular demonstrations and progress with artificial intelligence, autonomous systems and robotics in a way that has been quite extraordinary. Some people would actually argue we've made more progress in those systems in the last five or six or eight years than we've in the last 50 years. So this apparent rate of progress is what's probably changed the conversation. 
the other reason why the conversation has perhaps changed is that I think compared to, uh, at least on the surface of it, compared to uh, automation of the past, there's a sense that maybe this time it feels a little different. Now, there's a big debate whether it's really different or not, but the perception is that it's different. And the perception story typically goes as, well, in the past, what we were doing was to basically, we were adding muscle or mechanization to what people did. So if you were digging a ditch, you got assisted by a power machine. If you were doing essentially mechanical work, you were getting automation help. And that's, we've done that for a very long time. Then there was also the sense that, well, even when we automated other tasks that were not mechanical, what we were doing was basically fairly automating fairly routine work. So this was work that you could write a script for or a set of algorithms for, and then you got a machine to follow those rules, and it did the work. What feels different is that we seem to be building machines that aren't just about adding muscle and aren't just about automating routine tasks, but seem to be doing wholly new, different things, uh, getting at things that look like tacit knowledge, tasks that look like they're cognitive tasks, tasks that you, can, you, you, you can't write an algorithm for a machine to do. So that's where the techniques like machine learning, where it looks as if the machines are actually learning to do something, they're not being scripted to do something, they're discovering patterns, they're discovering things themselves. So this idea that we seem to be doing something technically different is one of the reasons, again, it's become to the fore. Now, there's a real question whether, in effect, are we really doing anything different or not is a separate question, but the, it feels different when you have machines that are able to do pattern matching better than human beings, machines that are able to discover novel solutions uh, to things. Then it feels different to people, and so people are, then start to worry, you know, what's left for human beings to do? Could you just say a couple of words about the technology that underlies the machine learning and why it is now, suddenly, that it's really making such rapid progress? Well, machine learning is essentially a set of techniques that basically uh, take advantage of neural networks. And what we do with neural networks is we feed neural networks a lot of data, and they basically build up by through what are called training algorithms patterns of what that data means and they build structure and sense out of that. And so within machine learning, you've got particular areas like deep learning, and then you've got also got areas like supervised learning. Supervised learning is when, in fact, you, you kind of use labeled data. So the machine keeps trying and it keeps, as a, there's a reference model that says, yeah, you got it right, didn't get it wrong, that's a, that's a cat, that's not a dog, that's a door, that's a, not a table, and it's labeled by a human being. So you've got these techniques, supervised learning, unsupervised learning, where the machine self-corrects itself. So the techniques themselves have actually made progress, and the neural networks largely come in two flavors, what are called convolutional neural networks and then recursive neural networks, and they're good at slightly different things. So because of those techniques, we've now been able to do things like classification much easier, and classification has typically then been applied to uh, image recognition, uh, facial recognition, things where you're able to classify and organize patterns. Similarly, we've applied similar techniques to natural language processing, when you can process blocks of data and, and interpret and learn meaning out of them. So because of the, that, that kind of progress in, if you like, uh, patterning and, and, and machine, which has been applied to machine vision and also techniques like uh, machine learning that's been applied to natural language processing, we've made enormous progress. Now you couple that with what I'll describe as more systems-level progress, where you put together 
these different systems, uh, sensor systems, image recognition systems, uh, navigation algorithms, now you start to get driverless cars or autonomous systems where you're putting together a collection of capabilities to do something in the physical or real world. And if you actually look at why so much progress this time around versus the last 20, 30 years, because none of these are really new techniques, where the progress comes down to about three things. One is, yes, the algorithmic techniques have made some progress, but progress has come from two other areas especially. One is the amount of compute power we now throw at these problems. Uh, so whether it's at the silicon level in terms of, uh, you know, now we apply not just typical CPUs, but now add GPUs and also now add compute clusters in the cloud and so forth. You now have enormous compute power you can throw at the problem. Then you have the third factor, which is the availability of data, which is we all now routinely add billions of pictures to the cloud every day. We add all kinds of contributions to voice technology and voice data streams all day long. So now we have huge amounts of data available to make these training algorithms work. So you put all that together, no surprise, we've had these breakthrough progress in the last five years. We've seen in the last report that came out in January on automation that you talk about the different activities that uh, machines are able to take on in the workplace. But I think at the same time, you, it's quite striking to see how you talk about the benefits and the upside, the productivity gains from automation. And I think that's a, a, an element that you seem to want to stress. Are you saying then that people have got automation wrong, that the fears are wrong, that actually we should look at the, at the benefits more closely? We should look at both. Um, but I think it's worth spelling out both sides of that. So on the benefit side, I think if you look at this from the point of view of businesses, for example, who are going to use these techniques, these automation, AI, machine learning techniques, the benefits are relatively clear. There's all kinds of performance improvements from reducing error rates, being able to do predictions better, being able to discover novel new solutions or insights. So the benefits in a use case sense to businesses is actually quite hard to disregard and ignore. And that's going to drive and encourage businesses to adopt these techniques, and they are. The benefits of the economy are also quite clear because we know that associated with most automation technologies, both in the past and even today and in the future, automation of these systems improve productivity. This is one of the mechanisms and ways in which we improve, if you like, economy-wide productivity. And at a time when we actually need more productivity growth in the economy, it's hard to ignore the contributions that these technologies do to productivity and hence the economy and hence economic growth. It's also hard to dispute some of the potential benefits and utility to people as users. Uh, we now have got quite comfortable using technology that's you know, voice recognition assistance uh, and all kinds of other techniques that are useful to us as users. So those benefits are clear to the users, to the economy, to business. The question is, what does this mean for work? And I think that's where a lot of concerns and anxieties come up as to the impacts on work. And what we do know is that if you look at most of the available technologies that have been demonstrated, the biggest impact, and we've looked at this across over 2,000 activities, and if you organize those activities, and these are activities that workers in the economy do, if you organize those activities into roughly eight categories, you have three categories of activities that are, that are very easy to automate with, the, with available technologies. That's activities that involve data collection of one sort or another, activities that involve data processing of one sort or another, 
activities that involve doing physical work in highly structured and predictable environments. Those three kinds of categories of activities, out of the total of about eight categories of activities, those three activities make up something like 51% of economic activity and what people, what workers do in an advanced economy like the United States. That's a big part of what people do. Now, to be perfectly clear, saying that 51% of activities are relatively easy to automate does not say 51% of jobs are going to go away. The job quest is a very different one because we know that uh, any one job consists of 20, 30 different kinds of activities aggregated into that job. So when you then ask the question, how many jobs, how many occupations have a fair share, you know, majority or 90% or 100% of their activities that are easy to automate, you get a much smaller number of the order of 5% of occupations. But then what you also see is that you've got a whole host of other occupations, by our count, 60% of occupations that have about a third of their constituent activities that are easy to automate. That also, that then tells you that we're probably going to have more jobs change than disappear because 60% of occupations is a big chunk of what people actually do. So the question of the impact on jobs and work is a much, much more nuanced and complicated one. And keep in mind, by the way, that when we talk about the impact of these technologies on work, it's one thing to look at questions of technical feasibility. In other words, what's now technically possible to automate? And I think that's an interesting question, but that's just the first of four or five questions you need to go through. The other questions include questions about, okay, so what's it going to cost to develop and deploy those technologies? Another question is, and how does that play into the labor market dynamics uh, in terms of you know, the relative cost of having people do that, the wages associated with that, the availability of people who can do that task instead of a machine, and the quality and the skills associated with, that, with, the, with the labor force. So these labor market dynamics are another important consideration, as well as other you know, ultimate questions about regulation and social acceptability and so forth. So the question of, so therefore, what will be the rate of adoption and the extent of adoption of these technologies depends on many more factors beyond just the technical feasibility. So how long will it be, actually, based on your research, before we really start seeing a critical mass of automation being adopted in workplaces? Well, I think it's going to go, it's going to go occupation by occupation, technology by technology, and activity by activity. So we, in, our, in our research, we imagine that if you look at the time between now and, say, 2030, uh, and you take into account all these factors... We, we would fully anticipate that across, uh, if you like, you know, a sample of, we've done research on a sample of about 46 countries, which are a mixture of developed economies and developing economies. Across that sample, it looks as if by 2030, you could imagine a range uh, which has a midpoint assumption that something like 16% of, uh, of occupations would have been automated. Uh, and it would be an impact and dislocated as a result of these technologies. Now, that number has a very wide range. The low end, it could be as low as very little, all the way up to about 30%. And the reason for that range is depends on the rates of adoption, the nature of the country and the wage dynamics in that country and in the sectors involved in that, in that country. So you can fully expect that in advanced economies, while I said the midpoint across 46 countries is 16%, the midpoint for advanced economies may be much higher than that in the 20s, in the 20%, whereas the midpoint for developing economies may be much, much lower simply because their wage rates are much, much lower. So if you're a Japan, you can expect a higher, if you like, percentage of your workforce that will probably be automated 
versus if you're in India, you can expect a much lower percentage of your workforce, largely due to the different labor market dynamics. Is the thing that drives that difference. You did say that there are going to be some difficult transitions. How difficult will they be? What sort of transitions are we talking about? So we're going to see a few different kinds of transitions. The first one is the fact that the, the mixture of occupations uh, is going to shift. So we know that, for example, that when you take into account the activities that are easy to automate relatively and the ones that are relatively harder to automate, it will result in some occupations growing more than others. What do I mean by that? So we know that, for example, occupations that involve a lot of data gathering, data processing, and physical work in structured environments are going to decline. The relatively harder occupations to activities to automate, like care work, work that requires empathy, judgment, and so forth, those occupations are going to rise. So the mix of occupations is going to shift substantially. And so that means that people are probably going to have to move and be uh, transitioned from certain occupations into the new occupations that are going to be growing. So that's one kind of transition. Another kind of transition is going to be the skill requirements. We know that the skill requirements are going to shift for a couple reasons. A, because people are, you know, are moving to new occupations that are going to require higher skills often. Uh, in order to do those occupations. But we also know the skill requirements are going to go up, if only because people are going to be working alongside highly capable and increasingly capable machines. And so in order for people to keep up and adapt and be working alongside effectively with highly, highly capable machines, that will require a very different set of skills. So the skill transitions are going to be quite substantial. That's why we're having a conversation now and we're starting to have a conversation about retraining and reskilling, especially, again, for mid-career workers who may have grown up in one environment with a certain set of skills and now are having to move into new occupations or even if they're in the same occupation, that occupation now requires a higher level of skills in order to be valued and, be, and continue to be effective. So the skill transitions are quite substantial. A third uh, transition that I think we're going to have to think about is the potential impact of all of this on incomes and wages. We know that, for example, the occupations that are going to be growing are ones that historically haven't had the highest wage structures associated with them. For example, we know that work in manufacturing always had slightly higher wages compared to, for example, work in activities like care work, whether it's teachers or elder care work and so forth. And so we know that the the mix of occupations that are growing unless we change our minds on how we think about valuing that work, have not historically had uh, high wage structures that go with them. So we're going to have to deal with that. We're also going to have to deal with the fact that as workers transition from one occupation to another, they may require all kinds of supports to as dislocation support as they move from where they are to where they're going to be. And we're going to have to rethink that. And, we, and that's particularly important at a time when historically... Most economies in the OECD have not always supported uh, worker transition as robustly as they could. In fact, worker dislocation support has actually declined over the last 30 years. Uh, and at a time when we're, going to, we're probably going to need it even more, we're going to have to come to our, we're probably going to have to change our minds about how we think about uh, worker dislocation mm-hmm. supports. So all of these are some of the transitions that I think we're going to have to grapple with. Uh, and, and this is a matter not just for governments and policymakers, but also even for businesses and uh, private sector leaders who are going to have to think about how do they 
retrain their workforce? How do they help redeploy their workforce as occupations and work change? How do they redesign work structures inside companies to support different and new kinds of ways of work? So there's enough work for everybody uh, to do, actually, as we manage our way through these transitions. But I'm, I'm relatively less worried about the question, will there be enough work for everybody? Of course, one can imagine scenarios where that would be the case, uh, but a more worried and wanting to make sure we focus on these, on these transition questions uh, for workers around skills, occupations, and the income and wage effects. I think that's where the real hard work is going to be. So the last question is, uh, it sounds like this is uh, a wake-up call that you're delivering to say you need to prepare as, as a government or as a business leader. Uh, do you think those conversations, or are you hearing those conversations taking place already in, uh, in, in policy and business circles, or is it still relatively early days for that? No, I, I, the, the good news is I think you know, many forward-looking business leaders and policymakers are in fact thinking about these questions. You see quite a few examples of CEOs who are leading reskilling efforts uh, throughout their workforce. You see CEOs who are trying to think about these deployment and redeployment questions in their workforce. You see policymakers who are also trying to think about what are the right ways to approach these. But it hasn't quite become the wide, widespread conversation that it needs to be. But I think this is what we need to be talking about now in terms of how do we prepare uh, for these choices. I think one of the things we've learned from the research we've done is that because as we started in this conversation, there's two sides to this. On the one hand, I think we want companies and governments and countries to embrace these technologies because of all the benefits that they bring to business and to the economy. So we have to have an embracing conversation at the same time also face up to the transitions and challenges and help workers manage their way through this transition. So the answer, in my mind at least, is not to say slow down everything, uh, because the problem with that is if you slow down adoption of these technologies, you're also putting dampers, if you like, on business dynamism and also economic growth, and that's not a good thing either. Uh, So you actually want to embrace and manage the transition. I think that's a simultaneous challenge that we've got ahead of us. Great. Thank you very much, James. I've been talking to James Manika, who's the chairman of the McKinsey Global Institute and a senior partner at McKinsey & Company in San Francisco. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.